Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. All right, President Trump uh, talking to reporters uh, in the East Room of the White House, I believe. Welcome to the lead. You've been listening to President Trump uh, talking about the latest in the coronavirus pandemic and the fight against it as the U.S. reaches another grim milestone this afternoon. The number of confirmed coronavirus cases in the United States has now topped one million. CNN's Caitlin Collins is at the White House for us right now. And Caitlin, President Trump, again, trying to shift the blame. Well, and Jake, it's notable that the president is taking questions at a place like this in the East Room. These are events where he normally does not take questions, but this comes as there's been this internal divide over whether or not the president should bring those press conferences he had been holding to an end after what happened on Thursday with the fallout over his remarks about potential treatments for coronavirus and what he said about household disinfectants and whatnot. But the president is still finding a way to take questions for the second time today. You saw him there saying that he believes we are soon going to be at that bench mark that experts have said the U.S. needs to hit a 5 million test per day. Of course, a reminder, we have only just hit over 5 million tests overall. I believe the vice president said yesterday it was 5.4 million tests done in general in the United States. And now the president is saying he hopes that they can up their daily basis of those tests. And of course, the question is really going to be, how are they going to do that? Because we saw them lay out those new guidelines yesterday that didn't really specify exactly how states are going to be ramping up testing, as governors have been saying that That's what's key to reopening their states. So the question about this 5 million test, the president did not put a deadline on when we're going to be hitting 5 million per day. But we should note we are not close to that at all right now. Right. And we're going to talk to Dr. Anthony Fauci later in the show about that and other issues pertaining to this. Thank you, Caitlin. Joining me now is CNN chief medical correspondent, uh, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Um, Sanjay, let's talk about the fact uh, that these experts who have these projections of what the death toll and the infection rate uh, will be, they have again revised the death toll, this time up Mm. to 74,000 by August. Partly, they say, this is because states are relaxing social distancing guidelines. Is that right? In other words, are the governors making decisions that will theoretically lead to more deaths? I, I, I think that that's, that's feeding into this uh, for certain. I mean, going up, you know, as, as high as it has. You know, keep in mind, Jake, you know, we've been talking about this particular model for some time. About a month ago, I think almost a mo- exactly a month ago, the, the toll was around the projection, I should say, for these tragic deaths, around 90,000 people. And then I think you and I both saw it go down to 60, 68,000 people. And uh, I think at that point, the point was that the, the stay-at-home orders were having an impact. We were starting to see that impact. And now as they start to get revised upwards, I think there's two things that are feeding it. The, the point that you're making, uh, if you start to relax something that we've known, we know has had a positive benefit, you're going to start seeing the numbers go the other way. I think another thing, Jake, as I follow these curves, you know, we talk about flattening the curve, uh, but it was still supposed to be a curve. And what you're seeing in some of these places is, a, is more of a plateau. So it almost seems like in some of these places, uh, people saw a certain amount of benefit and either uh, are relaxed 
relaxing it and, and we're not seeing the numbers start to come down as they should. The curve is just staying plateaued for a while, which I think is also feeding into these models. It should be going down in some of these places and it hasn't been as of yet. The concern is that we're actually starting to see a little bit of an upward trend as opposed to just a plateau as well. Mm. So, you know, we get, we're following that very closely, but I think those two things are really driving that increased uh, sad death toll. Of course, there's a big dip, uh, difficulty here for leaders, whether President Trump or governors. How do you balance the economic catastrophe going on versus the risk to lives? And I guess the question I have for you is, would this type of spike that the modelers are projecting, um, would that occur no matter when economies begin to reopen, uh, at least until there's a vaccine? I think there would be an increase uh, no matter when because, you know, this is a contagious virus. It's still out there. When we start opening things up, there are going to be people who get infected that otherwise would not, but, but not a spike like this, not like the spike that, you know, these IMHE modelers are predicting. I mean, it's a significant spike. It's a, you know, 25% spike, really, if you go from, uh, you know, 60 to 75,000, roughly. So it's significant. Uh, so I think your point uh, being that the, the, the virus is still going to be out there is true. And you, you are going to have to have a, a calculation at some point. But I think, Jake, what has struck me is that there were very specific gating criteria here that were based on, you know, the best data. We need to see a 14 day downward trend. I mean, the reason you say that is because you get down to a low, low level of enough infection that you start bringing what is called that R naught, you know, the likelihood you're going to spread it to somebody else. You want to bring that down to below one. That's how you start to actually make this virus start to fizzle out. As we know, you know, it's somewhere in you know, around three right now. So if you can bring it down below one, you'll start to see significant impact. That's what the 14 day trend in part was based on. Many states aren't following that. I mean, that was federal guide guidelines, admittedly, but still um, pretty easy to follow. I mean, pretty easy to read and to understand, uh, but obviously a lot of places not following them. Sanjay, I've been told that health experts would, would expect anywhere from two to 4% of those tested for the virus uh, to be positive. But the numbers that we're seeing are much higher than that. 8% in California, 19% in Georgia, 35% in New York, 17% across the U.S. Is this just a matter of right. who is being tested? What's going on here? Yeah, I think it's in part because, you know, we still aren't doing uh, good surveillance testing. You know, people who are getting tested for the most part are going to be higher risk people and you are, are more likely to get positive results, you know, in that population. Uh, but I think it, there's there's two things here. In order to get real prevalence, like, ha like out of 300 and whatever, 45 million people in the country, how many people actually have this? We, we don't know. We don't know the answer to that question. And, and obviously to really know it, you'd have to test everybody, which we're not going, you know, it's, it, that would be very hard to do. But you can start to extract extrapolate, you know, what, what the number is likely to be in terms of prevalence. And according to some of these studies, some of these antibody studies, you know, you start to look at like in New York, for example, I think they said the number was around 15% in the city of New York, maybe closer to 20, 25%. We don't know what it is in other places. But for the time being, the virus testing, instead of focusing on the numbers, which, you know, I, I get that people want to say, how many tests per day do you need to perform? What you really want to see is that the positivity rate drops below 10%. That's not telling you how many people out there have it. It's telling you that you're starting to test enough. You're seeing enough negatives, that meaning your, your penetration of testing is, is starting to feel more adequate. In Georgia, where I live, you know, we're closer to 20%, so double what we should be, and yet, you know, things are still reopening. It means that we haven't done enough testing.
All right, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thank you so much, as always. Coming up, the leading model revising its coronavirus death toll upwards. What's behind that? That's next. Plus, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the nation's top infectious disease expert, will join me live in minutes. Stay with us. This afternoon, the U.S. passed another grim, tragic milestone. More than one million in the nation have been confirmed infected with coronavirus. And the death toll in the United States from coronavirus now stands at 57,812. At this time a month ago, the death toll was 2,043. For context, about 58,000 Americans died in the Vietnam War over a nine-year span. We're close to losing that many Americans to coronavirus in only three months. And now the leading U.S. coronavirus model from the University of Washington has raised its projected deaths, predicting 74,000 lives will be lost in the U.S. just by August. CNN's Erica Hill takes a look now at how these new projection models show reopening states too early could bring deadlier outcomes. In my mind, it's inevitable that we will have a return of the virus, or maybe it never even went away. When it does, how we handle it will determine our fate. At least a dozen states pushing forward, as new models suggest the country could face a major setback if change comes too soon. Our forecast now is for 74,000 deaths. There's a, a lot of unknown factors there, but our best estimate is going up. The updated model, often cited by the White House, also predicting there could be longer peaks ahead if restrictions are eased too soon. If we are unsuccessful or prematurely try to open up and we have additional outbreaks that are out of control, it could be much more than that. Harvard researchers estimate the U.S. needs to test 5 million people a day by early June to safely begin reopening. The White House testing czar disagrees. So we don't believe those estimates are really accurate, nor are they reasonable in our society. Many areas around the country looking to antibody testing to better understand the spread. Nearly 15 percent of the thousands tested across New York state were positive for the antibodies. That number is closer to 25 percent in New York City. A lot more people were getting infected before it actually started to show up. In addition to random sampling, states and cities also testing first responders and frontline workers for antibodies. As officials weigh the data, Americans are trying to figure out what the coming weeks and months could look like amid new warnings about the economy. I think by June, you know, I think that we're looking at numbers between 16 and 20 percent. The unemployment rate at that point will be something that's about as high as something that we haven't seen since, you know, the 1930s. The president suggesting in a call with governors that schools should reopen even if just for a few weeks. Yet 39 states have already decided children will not return to the classroom this school year as concerns grow about a deepening divide. New York City trying to bridge the gap with nearly 250,000 iPads and Internet access. Meantime, at hospitals, grocery stores and on the streets of America, frontline workers push ahead. Along the East Coast today, grateful cities pausing for a flyover. To honor their sacrifice. It was a beautiful tribute. But what better place than New York City for them to do this? 
And Jake, just another reminder, as you point out, we are reaching these grim milestones, certainly in the number of Americans who have been lost to this virus. There are also those on the front lines uh, who deserve the recognition for everything that they are doing to keep this country running on a daily basis, Jake. Amen. Erica Hill, thanks so much. This afternoon, President Trump claimed he is not sure if he was warned by intelligence officials about coronavirus in January or February. Despite U.S. officials telling The Washington Post they sounded the alarm in more than a dozen classified briefings known as the PDB, the presidential's daily brief. And remember, after those warnings allegedly happened in January and February, exactly two months ago today in February, this was what then acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney, who by then had already been tested for coronavirus. This is what he told a conservative conference about why journalists were covering coronavirus and the administration's failures to adequately prepare. The reason you're paying so that you're saying so much attention to it today is that they think this is going to be what brings down the president. That's what this is all about. Um, I got a note today from a, from, a, from a reporter saying, what are you going to do today to calm the markets? And I'm like, really, what I might do today to calm the markets is tell people to turn their televisions off for 24 hours. How embarrassing. As CNN's Caitlin Collins reports for us again now, all of these new questions come as the president urges states to start trying to get back to normal. Facing questions about what he knew and when, President Trump says he isn't sure if his intelligence briefings earlier this year included warnings about coronavirus. I would have to check. I would have to check. I want to look as to the exact dates of warnings. The Washington Post reports that Trump's daily intelligence briefings in January and February tracked the virus's spread and warned that China could be suppressing information, all as he continued to publicly downplay the threat. The questions about whether warning signs were ignored come one day after the White House released new guidelines about increasing testing. We are continuing to rapidly expand our capacity. Many governors have said for weeks they don't have enough tests or supplies needed to make the difficult decisions about reopening their states and need the federal government to step in. But the new White House game plan leaves the states in charge and says the federal government should only be used as a last resort. The testing is not going to be a problem at all. The president says he's confident the U.S. can double the testing it's doing now, though health experts have said his proposal for increasing testing falls short of what's needed. While meeting with the Florida governor today, Trump said he's considering requiring coronavirus tests and temperature checks for those arriving on international flights. We're working with the airlines on that. Testing on the plane, getting on the plane. Today, the president is also expected to use the Defense Production Act to require meat processing plants to remain open. We're working with Tyson. Some of the country's biggest meat processing plants have been forced to close and stop operations after thousands of employees tested positive for coronavirus, raising questions about worker safety and possibly threatening the U.S. food supply. By signing the executive order, a White House official says Trump will declare those plants as critical to U.S. infrastructure and said the Labor Department is expected to issue guidance about potential liabilities. We're going to sign an executive order today, I believe, and uh, that'll solve any liability problems where they had certain liability problems. While touring the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota today, the vice president appeared to be the only person not wearing a mask as he visited with health care workers and plasma donors. For two weeks now, the Mayo Clinic has required all patients and visitors to wear mask or face coverings. 
And while Pence was still there today, the clinic tweeted that it had informed him of its policy before he arrived. Now, Jake, shortly after they sent out that tweet, the Mayo Clinic then promptly deleted it. We should note that the vice president is getting tested for coronavirus on a weekly basis still, as is the president. But so far, his office has not responded about why he was not wearing a mask if they told him he should be. All right, Caitlin Collins, thank you so much. Coming up, Dr. Anthony Fauci from the White House Coronavirus Task Force will join me live. That's coming up next. Stay with us. Welcome back. The U.S. now has a million confirmed coronavirus cases with the death toll in the United States approaching 60,000. This, as the White House says, the federal government will begin to ramp up efforts to help states take charge of testing, allowing for a testing of a minimum of 2% of the state's population every month. Joining me now, Dr. Anthony Fauci. He's director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. He's a critical member of the White House task force. Dr. Fauci, uh, thanks for joining us as always. Um, so let's talk about this. The federal government is helping states add six to eight million tests a month. Uh, I believe you would like that number to be closer to 12 million tests a month, right? Right. Well, what, what we're doing right now, it's very clear from the guidelines that came out, uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, the blueprint for testing clearly indicates something that we really have to do. There has to be a partnership between the federal government and the states. The, the, the federal government has to, has to provide strategic guidance as well as technical assistance. We had a phone call with the governors where that was explained. That I mean, obviously, when you say you put tests out there, Jake, one of the problems has been is the tests getting to the people who need them or are there tests out there when they're not connecting the dots? And what we're trying to do, and I, I, I believe that was pretty, pretty well articulated to the governors, was if that's not happening, if we're not connecting those dots, we need to help them to do that. We, we can't just leave them on their own on the one hand, and the federal government can't do it by itself on the other hand. So we've really, we've really got to be having a, a, a productive partnership. And I believe that most of the governors have resonated with that. We haven't gotten it perfect yet, for, for sure. I mean, we know that. I mean, obviously, mm. you call around, and a lot of people feel okay about what's going on, but others still need to connect those dots. And that's what we're working on. The issue about tests is that as we get into the next weeks to several weeks to a month, as we get into May and June, from what we're hearing, and I'm telling you, uh, Jake, what, what we're hearing from the people in the task force who deal directly with the companies, namely the major firms that make the tests, uh, this is predominantly Admiral Brett Girard, is telling us that we will have a very, very increased production so that by the time we get to those months, we should have what we need. But, you know, mm. I, I'm always the skeptic in the group. And I always say, OK, I, I hear right. you. I believe you. But let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. And as and as you know, and you and I have talked about this, the issue is, is it's more than just the tests themselves. It's also about the testing supplies, the swabs, the reagents that hold the sample, the lab employees, the lab equipment. I want you to take a listen to these governors uh, re reflecting both Democrats and Republicans. Broad anybody testing needs the federal government and especially the FDA to step up and give states and providers a lot more guidance than we have now. We keep asking for masks. We keep asking for gowns. We keep asking for uh, the reagents. And um, I'm tired of asking. 
So that was uh, Charlie Baker from Massachusetts, a Republican, and Ned Lamont from Connecticut, a Democrat. They're begging for federal help because they say, uh, governors in general say, they don't have the ability, unlike President Trump, to force companies to manufacture reagents or PPE or more. What what do you say to them? No, I mean, listen, when when people like that who in good faith are calling out for help, I tend to believe them and, and resonate with them. So the thing we have to do, Jake, we have to help them. And, you know, at the last meeting, uh, when we did speak to the governors, uh, what Doc, with the Admiral Girard had in front of him was literally a flow sheet of all the different states, the tests they have, the tests they need. And the point was made to them that if, in fact, you still don't have either the test or the material to do it, we will call you up and we will try and connect you with the pathway to get that. So it's going to be more of a reaching out. And the fact that we have to do that means that what you're hearing is true in some respects. It isn't perfect yet by any means. But as every day and week goes by and we have more tests and we try to get the people who are making these other materials, these swabs, these extraction uh, uh, material, these media. I mean, obviously, if they don't have it, we have to get it to them. But I believe, Jake, that we are going strongly in the right direction. I think what gets confused is that when they say that, when you hear uh, Admiral Giroir talk about the numbers of tests that are out there, that the people who don't have them say, wait a minute, what, what's going on? What's the truth here? The truth is that we're going in the right direction, but we need to continue to partner in a very active, collaborative way with the states. We need to help them the same way they need to do the execution. And we're going to get there, but it's, it, it's you know, as I said before, And every time I do, it gets taken a little bit out of context, not by you, but by some that say it isn't perfect and we're not there yet. And we're not. But we're going to get there. We're going to get there soon, I hope. When do you think? I mean, when will it all be up to speed? When will everybody who needs to get a test be able to get one? Yeah, and I I like the word you used, uh, Jake, when you said need, uh, because a lot of times people say, I want to test and it's not part of, of the strategic approach. But needing is important. Everyone who needs a test, according to the way we're approaching the identification, isolation, contact tracing, keeping the country safe and healthy, that hopefully we should see that as we get towards the end of May, the beginning of June. Jake, that's what I'm being told by the people who are responsible for the testing. I take them for their word. If that doesn't happen, I'm going to go to them and say, what happened here? Why didn't it happen? And how can we fix it? It seems like there's so much about this virus that we don't know. And in fact, uh, the CDC just added a whole bunch uh, of new symptoms uh, to the description. We're also seeing, uh, I think, uh, some accounts of young people uh, first of all, we're hearing uh, doctors share stories of increased blood clotting in patients, especially uh, young people, uh, more prone to strokes uh, and neurological impairment. Um, tell us about the, the uncovering, the discovery, the mystery of this coronavirus yeah. and when we're going to know enough about it to be able to, to solve and, and come up with a vaccine. You know, that's a great question, Jake. And, and as you were describing that, it was reminding me of the early years of HIV AIDS, when we were trying to figure out what I would call, in fact, that's the name of my group, the pathogenic, immunopathogenic section in my laboratory. 
is trying to look at what the pathogenesis, and that's a big word to mean, how does the virus do its damage? And what are the primary and secondary effects of infection? And it took us a while to delineate that completely in HIV AIDS. And we're having the same experience now. We're seeing things that weren't quite noticed in the big chaos of the explosion of cases, first in China, then Europe, and now in the United States. But now we're starting to see things that on the one hand are puzzling, but on the other hand are enlightening. And I say they're enlightening because they can inform us and open up maybe more modalities of treatment. So there are two major buckets of treatment. You directly treat the virus by an antiviral agent, by an antibody, by whatever it is that you put in there to block the virus. But then the virus triggers things in the body that as we see more of it now, we say, wait a minute, maybe there's another avenue of treatment of being able to block the secondary, often deadly effects of the virus. And one of them you mentioned quite clearly. When you look at autopsies now, we're seeing things that we didn't expect. We thought it was all primary viral pneumonia because people would have ground grass appearance in their chest X-ray, which is indicative of a diffuse involvement of the lung. Then when you look at what's in there, there are a thing called microthrombi, which means platelets aggregate and thrombuses form. When that happens, the diffusion of oxygen back and forth to the blood doesn't work. And that may be why people who are in that situation seem to be doing well, and then all of a sudden they rapidly Mm. and dramatically deteriorate. You know, as a physician who's taken care of acutely ill patients for a good proportion of my career, when you see somebody sitting around looking well and either immediately drops, that's probably a cardiac arrest, but if someone deteriorates very, very rapidly, there are only a couple of things that can do that. One of them is you're bleeding out. The other one is you're having thrombi or blocking of blood vessels. And that's one thing Mm. that I think we really need to pursue. The reason I say that, Jake, is because there's treatment for that that's above and beyond the treatment of just antiviral. And right now, together with the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, the Neurological Institute at the NIH, we're putting together protocols and others, we're not the only ones that are doing it, to determine if that's the cause of the deterioration in addition to the virus, we gotta aim at two goals. We gotta block the virus, but we gotta do something about those secondary effects. And these are the things that are emerging right now that are both fascinating and informative. So we have a lot to learn, but it's opening up the door, I believe, to some interventions that might be helpful. That's fascinating. Dr. Fauci, as always, thank you so much for your time. Uh, we hope to have you on again soon. It's always, a, always an honor. Thank you so much. It's, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Jake. Thank you. Back with me now is CNN Chief Medical Correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Um, Sanjay, I want to get your reaction uh, to what Dr. Fauci uh, just said. Um, first of all, a very uh, interesting uh, riff he had there at the end about this uh, the, the mystery that they're uncovering when it comes to this virus and why it is it's not just about the lungs. It's also uh, about, you know, uh, micro thrombi, I think he referred to them. Explain to people what they just heard and why that's significant. 
I, I think the uh, the significant thing uh, was that you know we think of a respiratory virus like this as something that you know primarily is going to affect the lungs, primarily cause a pneumonia, uh, and and that's what you know the expectation was. I think for a lot of doctors, understandably, uh, respiratory therapists who were trying to treat these patients, uh, different things started to emerge. I remember one of the first clues was people were losing their sense of smell as a first symptom, and a lot of people thought, well, why would that be? Why would a respiratory virus cause that? What Dr. Fauci was just talking about, and uh, there was a few reports on this this week, that it seems to also, as a first symptom again, uh, cause people to have increased blood clots. Um, blood clots that may form in their legs and go to their lungs, it's called the pulmonary embolism, go from elsewhere in their body uh, to, their, to their carotid arteries, their brain causing strokes as a first symptom. Uh, it, it almost reminds me, I was writing about this last night, Jake, that you know, like what we first called the car, people first called it the horseless carriage, right? Because everything was done in the context of horses still. It's almost like this virus, we're trying to put it in a box, a respiratory virus box, and we're learning every day that this virus is behaving unlike a lot of other viruses. So it is a coronavirus, it is a respiratory virus in terms of how it spreads, but how it behaves in the body, it may not even be the lungs that it first affects, it could be the blood, it could be you know the clotting mechanism, it could be these other organs. So I think that that's what uh, Dr. Fauci was talking about, and he said that there's a lot that we still have to figure out. Why are young people. Uh, you know, mostly it's rare, uh, rare for, for young people to get very sick and die, but it happens. Why? What's happening in their bodies that's different in some ways? So um, I think that's what he was referring to, Jake. It was very interesting. He also acknowledged uh, the testing isn't where it needs to be in this country, which of course is, is obvious. He, he thinks uh, that we as a country are going to be able to get to a place where everybody who needs a test, not the same thing as everybody who wants a test, but everybody who needs a test will be ramped up, and uh, in, in, he hopes, uh, by the end of May, early June. What, what do you make of that? I, I think a lot of people are going to need a test. I mean, you know, I mean, I'm not sure the need-want sort of differentiation ends up being that, that critical here because in order to do the, there's people who don't know if they need a test or, or want to test, they, but they're going to have to have a test if they're going to go back out in public places where they are not going to be able to physically distance and have the confidence to do that. I mean, there was a report that just came out, another one from the Harvard School of Public Health that is now saying uh, that you, we may need by June to be at 5 million tests a day and that by the end of summer or mid to end of summer, we may need to be at 20 million tests a day. If you look carefully at the White House plan in terms of what they were saying, they were saying that, you know, they're sort of looking at 2 percent, uh, I'm sorry, um, uh, yes, 2 percent of the, of the country being tested a month. So that's roughly 6 to 7 million tests a month, whereas you're hearing we may need to be at 20 million a day by the end of summer. So, I mean, yes, uh, Dr. Fauci's right. We, we've certainly improved, and I think a lot of f people are focused on the absolute numbers here, but the reason uh, the Harvard School of Public Health and others have said we need to be testing at that level is to basically get an idea of just how many people out there are, are infected and, you know, and to, to start to get an idea of what sorts of industries, businesses can be reopened. We're not anywhere near that right now, Jake, in, in, in most places. Yeah, the, uh, the admiral uh, in the coronavirus task force, Admiral uh, Giraud, talked about how uh, they don't agree uh, with that Harvard uh, study, not surprisingly. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, uh, thank you so much. Be sure to tune in to CNN this Thursday for a CNN town hall with Dr. Sanjay Gupta. And Bill Gates, 
who's been talking about pandemics for years now. It's at 8 p.m. Eastern on Thursday. Coming up, one researcher says it's a disgrace the government is prioritizing larger labs to test for coronavirus as opposed to hospitals, medical centers, and smaller ones. Up next to CNN, investigation why many hospitals and doctor's offices say they're getting shortchanged on testing supplies. Stay with us. President Trump says he's confident the United States has enough testing to reopen the country, but a new CNN investigation finds that not only is there a critical shortage of testing supplies at smaller labs, hospitals, and states across the country, but many of the supplies that do exist are being handed over to big commercial laboratories before going to hospitals, clinics, and small labs. And as CNN's Drew Griffin reports for us now, now hospital groups and medical associations are begging the White House task force for help. What the president says at his briefings. Confident that we have enough testing to begin reopening and the reopening process. Is not the reality at labs across the country. Every day is a struggle. A CNN investigation finds a critical shortage of COVID-19 testing supplies at many labs is delaying and halting testing. And the supplies that are available are often distributed unevenly, leaving big commercial labs with everything they need while some hospitals, clinics, and other medical centers don't have enough. I knew we needed capability to do a 1,000 tests a day, and we didn't have that. Mary Busalis is CEO of Premier Health Hospital System, who sent a letter earlier this month to Ohio's governor saying inequitable distribution of reagents, the chemicals needed to perform tests, was impacting patient care standards. We kept running into anecdotal information from vendors that said they had a reagent, but they couldn't sell it to us. Um, And so that was of concern to me. Different labs need different supplies. For some, it's swabs, others, pipettes or reagent. Multiple healthcare facilities tell CNN supplies they order either don't arrive or they only get a fraction of what they need. It's not unusual for us to place an order and to be told that the order is going to be canceled and it can't be filled or that we only get 10% of what we order. Meanwhile, the biggest commercial labs like Quest and LabCorp tell CNN they have the supplies they need. The White House task force even shared plans to prioritize supplies for commercial labs. The big labs make up more than half of all testing in the United States, more than three million tests so far. Though experts say the inequity is leaving critical health care facilities where sick patients go to get tested without necessary supplies. I think is a disgrace. So to prioritize testing to be sent out away from a hospital that may have the capacity to do in-house testing is basically contrary to all the principles of optimal patient care. The heads of major lab associations have been writing directly to the task force asking for help, like Carmen Wiley with the American Association for Clinical Chemistry, describing significant barriers to testing because of shortage of necessary supplies. We feel there's a disconnect between the theoretical capacity and what we're actually able to do. Some state governments also complaining about lack of supplies. Washington, D.C.'s health director says the district is only able to do half the number of tests it could if it had proper supplies. And it's clear the task force knows. This document shared with governors obtained by CNN shows the federal government discussing barriers to testing, including insufficient laboratory personnel, funding and supplies. Today we're releasing additional guidance on testing to inform the states. Monday, the White House released a blueprint for change that critics say changes little. 
States and local labs fend for themselves for precious supplies, adding to confusion, scarcity, and lack of tests where they are needed most. Overall, testing numbers are inching up when experts say we need leaps. Harvard estimates 500,000 tests a day at minimum are needed to reopen the country. Current averages are less than half that amount. And Jake, Vice President Pence, again promising millions of tests a week very soon, a promise he's made before and not kept. Jake? True, Griffin. Thank you so much. Moments ago from the White House, President Trump praised the federal loan program, helping many small businesses try to stay afloat. But the program is not without problems, as we've been covering for weeks. Latest development, the NBA's Los Angeles Lakers are the latest big money operation to dip into funds intended for small businesses without access to capital. The L.A. Lakers have now returned the money. Plus, more technical issues plague the second round of loans. I want to bring in CNN business anchor Julia Chatterley. And Julia, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin called it outrageous that the Lakers took $4.6 million in a loan. There's also a multimillionaire Trump donor who owns a hotel chain in Texas. He also received small business loans. These loans, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, were meant for companies, smaller companies, having a difficult time getting access to capital to stay afloat. Were these larger businesses out of line to apply for these loans in the first place? Technically, to use the basketball analogy, Jake, there was no foul play here, but it's like two 20-foot basketball players walking onto the court and saying, hey, let's play. Is it fair? No, it's not. And that's why the rules have changed here. To your point, the Lakers gave the money back. That hotel chain has not so far. They've got under a week to change their minds or face fierce scrutiny, as they should. The Lakers, Shake Shack, Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, they're all among those giving back millions of dollars. How much overall is being returned at this point? Yeah, this is a great question. The Small Business Administration tweeted yesterday that over $2 billion have been declined or returned from the first round. That's going to be added into the current pot. It's small in terms of the whole size, but it's big in terms of small businesses that are still desperately waiting for the money. And I think that's the point here. The second round of loans opened yesterday. Lenders worried the $310 billion could be gone in days. Does it appear that will be the case? It's guesswork. The rules have changed. There was bulk submissions, and we're talking hundreds of thousands of applications. There's pacing going on in terms of the number of applications for the banks per hour. The most consistent message I'm hearing, Jake, is a week, but I'll reiterate it's guesswork right now. Is there still an advantage for working relationships between lenders, companies, and the Small Business Administration, do you think? The best advantage, I think, is being advised by your lender not to take this PPP money and being found an alternative. I think it's working better this time around. And businesses can apply for as much as $10 million. Mnuchin said today that the SBA, the Small Business Administration, is going to review all loans over $2 million Is that a lot of money for a so-called small business, $2 million? Never mind the $2 million, Jake. The cap on this lending program is $10 million, and it makes no sense to me. What this means is in order to get forgiveness, a small, small business has to be paying payrolls of $7.5 million over two months. How many mom-and-pop businesses do you know that spend that kind of money paying their workers? This cap should have been bought right down. Make it $2 million and make it applicable only to the smallest businesses in this country. I could have done that from the beginning, but uh, no one's listening, Jake. 
Julia Chatterley, thank you so much, as always. We have been talking for weeks now with mental health experts who have been warning that frontline healthcare workers will no doubt be battling post-traumatic stress dealing with this pandemic for years. And now we have learned of a top Manhattan emergency room doctor who devoted her life to saving others who took her own life on Sunday after working on the front lines of this horrific pandemic. Dr. Lorna Breen, who worked in the Columbia University Irving Medical Center and New York Presbyterian Hospital System, she had been treating patients with coronavirus in the heart of the epicenter of this pandemic worldwide. Breen told her father that her colleagues were working 18-hour days, they were sleeping in the hallways, they were trying to care for the influx of COVID-19 patients. She described how ambulances had to be turned away at the hospital because the hospital was at capacity. Dr. Breen herself contracted coronavirus after tirelessly working in the emergency room for weeks. She took just a week and a half off before returning to work to help save others while still battling symptoms. Dr. Breen was admitted to the hospital and treated for exhaustion. Days later, she took her own life. Her father, Philip, called her a hero, saying, quote, she went down in the trenches and was killed by the enemy on the front line. She loved New York and wouldn't hear about living anywhere else. She loved her coworkers and did what she could for them, unquote. May Dr. Breen's memory be a blessing and a reminder of the stress and trauma endured by all the medical heroes fighting against coronavirus. They will need to be taken care of as well. If you or someone you know is having any suicidal thoughts, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.